Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us. Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast for the UNESCO Chair for Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts, which we just shortened to UNESCO RILA for short. My name is Tawona Sutole, also known as Ganyamatope. I am artist in residence with the chair program. And today I'm very excited to introduce uh, a guest we have here, Fergus McNeil, who is a professor in criminology at the University of Glasgow, also a musician who has offered us a song for our podcast and uh, other things we will find out from him that he does. And uh, it's a big welcome to Fergus McNeil. Hi, nice to be with you. Thank you. It's it's good to uh, get a chance to chat. Um, so yeah, how are you doing today? I am enjoying the sunshine for once, the blue skies. I'm looking out uh, over over the trees. So yeah, that's always good for the soul. For sure. And uh, so yeah, uh, if I ask you to use a color mm -hmm. to describe how you're feeling, which color might you pick? Today is a a green day. Green. Yeah. Nice one. Yeah. Calm, I think, uh, is what green conveys mostly. So that's what I'm aiming for today. Uh, great. So uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, well, my, my day job is uh, as a professor of criminology and social work at the University of Glasgow. I've been there since 1998. And before that, um, I was a social worker working mostly in the criminal justice system and criminal justice has remained my main area of interest since whether as a teacher, um, as a researcher or as somebody trying to uh, work with other people to develop new practices and new approaches. Thanks. And um, so you know that we are, the UNESCO chair is in uh, refugee integration through languages and the arts. Mm -hmm. Uh, what's your own experience of integration, uh, languages and the arts? <laughs> <laughs> well, the language is one I can deal with quickly, apart from being yeah. two years into trying to develop my ability to speak a little bit of Spanish. Um, I am sadly and shamefully monolingual, like far too many British people. Um, in relation to integration, well, my own work um, has centered around ideas of rehabilitation and reintegration for people who've been through um, institutions, cultures and practices of punishment. Um, and mostly that's been based in, in the UK, uh, although I have uh, traveled quite extensively and, and sometimes worked with people in other countries um, who are trying to change uh, penal systems. And I guess the, the connection to the UNESCO uh, chair I mean, I've got to know Alison Phipps well over the last few years and in some of our conversations about how the debate about integration plays out in different contexts, she's introduced me to the idea of multilateral integration. Um, in other words, that, you know, we all integrate one another into communities. Um, it's not a case of there being one host and one guest or um, one person who's at home and one who is returning or arriving for the first time. 
And I think that concept works really well in the context of criminal justice too, uh, where far too much emphasis has been placed, in my view, on preparing or training individuals who go through the criminal justice system to be integrated or inserted back into society and far too little attention has been played to the kind of reception um, that awaits them when they return um, and whether there are spaces and places that are made welcoming for them both in relation to their homes and in relation to their communities and in relation to the labor market and broadly in relation to their position in society. So um, much of my work recently has been kind of thinking about integration more creatively and in more uh, complex ways. And uh, nowadays I, I, I'm almost preferring to think about and use the term solidarity uh, rather mm. than integration. So what is it that creates relationships that are characterized by solidarity and mutuality and reciprocity, especially where people's relationships have been fractured by crime and punishment? Well, that that's great. Thanks. It's, yeah, it's, uh, I think language is always so important mm. uh, at how we experience or perceive things. I realize I didn't answer the third part of your question, which was about the arts. Um, yes, go for it. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, about 10 years ago, um, I had my first involvement in researching arts practices in criminal justice in a big national project called Inspiring Change, where all sorts of different artists and theatre companies and orchestras and operas uh, and the National Portrait Gallery went into Scottish prisons and did fascinating work. Um, with a whole range of different people there. Um, and I wasn't there because I had any expertise in the arts, but as a, as a criminologist with an interest in rehabilitation. Um, but I was genuinely uh, blown away by the data that was generated in that project and by how mm. it revealed the ways in which participation in, an, in a whole range of different arts projects created opportunities for people to express themselves, to explore questions of identity and community, and to develop skills and connections. And then also in performances and exhibitions to see work that they had produced or co-produced being celebrated uh, and recognized by others. Um, and that was that was a very powerful uh, project and, and changed the way that I thought about the role of the arts in criminal justice and uh, around about the same time with a friend um, Alison Yuri, uh, I, I uh, set up um, a, an organization called Vox Luminous which specifically aimed to bring uh, music creative practices associated with music making and songwriting into a criminal justice context to try to spark change and build relationships. And we've been doing that work together ever since. Well, I, I love that. Um, my own experience, actually, uh, of, uh, you know, through the Scottish Book Trust, mm -hmm. I, I, um, I do some visits into prisons, and that has been my exposure to um, that side of things. Great. Um, yeah, so um, we, are, we are discussing uh, music today. Uh, do you want to 
tell us a little bit about your journey into music and how, how you found your yourself uh, playing guitar. Is it guitar? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I've played for a long time, like like yeah. lots of people, but not very well. Um, and I still don't play all that well. But um, what happened essentially was when I'll, I'm wrestling <laughs> you for that one another time. <laughs> <laughs> when we when we set up Vox Luminous um, and started doing collaborative creative work um it was quickly made clear to me by Alison and others um that there there could be no observers right you, you if you if you're going to engage you have to engage um and in a certain sense that's about sharing in the risk of making yourself vulnerable by uh, trying to um, bring something out of yourself um and, and share it and express it uh, with others so I was plunged into songwriting immediately uh, in the context of of the uh, the early days of of Vox Luminous, and um, it was a little bit like uh, the proverbial cork in the bottle. Once it had been opened, it just flowed, um, and I found myself writing uh, poems and lyrics and uh, and trying to find ways to set them to music um more and more over the over the years that followed and uh now about eight eight years later maybe um since it all started uh yeah i can't stop literally it's just a it's become a a form or a, a practice which is intrinsic to the way in which i make sense of my life and my work um and also i think it's helped me to to connect my personal life and my professional life in ways which have been quite enriching too. Well, uh, what, what a journey, but yeah, I, I have to um, salute you for, uh, you know, going for it because it's it's not easy to learn something new for sure and sort of come out of uh, some comfort zones that we find ourselves setting up for ourselves, you know. Yeah, you were, you're too kind to say at your age, but it's true. I'm a man in my 50s and uh, <laughs> I, I feel like an old dog who is learning some new tricks. So that's good. No, but, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a problem we have in Zimbabwe in my mom's language in Shona. They say, which means uh, learning is, is never exhausted. Yeah. So you, you can always learn uh, some more. Yeah. So yes, uh, so let's talk about this song. Uh, tell us how you came to write this song and you know, and the title as well. Okay. Um, well, this was quite early uh, in the process of me starting to write songs. This is um, within the first couple of years uh, and also within the first couple of years of Vox Luminous. And one of the things that we do in, in Vox is uh, a regular Tuesday night gathering um usually over a meal um but also uh you know we follow that by uh, working in in a whole range of different creative practices and unbound is the kind of the hub of the community of people involved in the projects that we run um and anybody who participates in just about anything we do has an invitation an open invitation to come along there um to the centre of town on a Tuesday night and enjoy the food and the company and the creativity. So in the early days of that, um, I think I had been to a gig in Celtic Connections. I'm pretty sure it was a Chris Drever gig. He plays in a band called Lau. Really good Scottish folk musicians, all of them. And I, 
I wanted to write something in that sort of style uh, to the best of my limited ability. Um, and so I thought, I'll write a Scottish folk song. Um, what do we what do we write about or what do we hear about in folk songs? Well, often the stories of uh, people and places and ancestors and so on. Um, and it, it clicked that I had many years ago when I was about 20 graduating from my first degree, uh, I had I had done a little bit of work on the family tree, a bit of uh, genealogical work uh, to try to learn a bit more about where I'd come from. And I'd managed to go back four or five generations on my father's side. Um, and I had been in intrigued uh, to find out a little bit about my father and my father's father and my father's father's father and so on. And we got back to uh, 1789. Uh, which was not just the year of the French Revolution, but the year that my great-great-great-great-grandfather married my great-great-great-great-grandmother in a little church, uh, which had been built just two years before on the west coast of the Mull of Kintyre. And back then I visited those places and tried to sort of situate what I had learned uh, about the people, which was not much, but just, you know, what you can pick up from... Uh, from birth and marriage and death uh, certificates and also from census uh, data. And I kind of wove that all together into a, a song which uh, traces the um, each generation, uh, says a little bit about each of these fathers, um, and then also indirectly reflects on the journeys that they went on and that therefore the wider family have been on. So we we travel with them from rural um, West Kintyre where the first of them, Lachlan, worked on a farm. His son John was also an agricultural labourer um, and died in poverty. Um, he had two families though, he married twice and we are descended from his second family. His son Peter moved to Campbelltown to work on the shipyards and then moved again from Campbelltown to Glasgow. Um, he he was a, a socialist and a, a, a self-taught person. Uh, his son, my grandfather John, was born uh, blind um, but was a gifted musician. Um, and my dad was then brought up as an only child by um, his mum and dad, uh, who were uh, also committed socialists who sent him off to socialist Sunday school and uh, inculcated the values that I suppose he um, transmitted to me, all, all, always mixed with the values of my mother and that maternal line as well. I've probably explained too much. You don't have to listen to the song now. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, uh, it, it, no, it's great to hear that process because I, I really, I love hearing about process, you know, because quite a lot of times, you know, we, we just see the finished mm -hmm. uh, article. So it's, it's good to hear the journey. And you, I, I mean, you, you've mentioned this, you know, you've talked about standing, one image that stood out for me was you standing in the same place that, yeah. you know, uh, your, your grandparents stood yeah getting married uh well, that's yeah. the thing jo was listed as a shoemaker and that's why the song's called shoemaker son um mm. but i i think that what that means was that he was a blacksmith i think it's horseshoes that he made uh, ah. on uh um on a farm uh which 
which is where he was listed as residing. And that farm still exists, and there's a standing stone in it, uh, which I've visited, obviously, and stood beside. And, and I've stood in the church where they married um, several times now, um, and, and, you know, obviously visited graveyards and so on. But there's something... I, I think the family for me isn't about buildings or places. Um, it's about people, obviously, and relationships. And um, at the same time, there's a relationship between people and places which is profound. And uh, I, I certainly found it very powerful to to literally stand in the places where they'd stood and to try to imagine something about the lives that they had led. Um, and, and to, you know, to put that in the context of what migration means as well. Uh, in, in the case of my family, these are very small migrations from one part of Scotland to another, although there are branches of the family that, that moved much further, obviously, because of uh, land clearances and because of poverty, um, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries. And of course, the the cruel um, reality of that is that they then became the settlers in other countries who displaced indigenous peoples um, and, you know, transmitted harm, if you like, uh, the harm of uh, greed, uh, that you know the the greed that drove the clearances in the highlands also drove the highlanders to places where they exploited both the people and the land um in order to you know better their own situation so yeah there's lots of lessons in this family history and i think about it a lot and uh, try to use it as a way to situate myself and 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 think about um not just where you come from and where your ancestors stood, but where you stand, both literally and um, politically. So wh what you stand for and who you stand with is also, I think, part of the story of this song. Well, uh, this is so rich. And uh, Fergus, I don't want to, um, to miss what you said in the previous conversation we had about um, the integration situation and you as, as being Scottish, right? Uh, always being presumed to be the host. But you said something really interesting about that's not necessarily always um, as simple as that. Yeah, and and, and this, I, again, I, I understand this probably best in the context of criminal justice where it's so easy to, um, to, to fall into the trap of... Uh, seeing people and treating people as uh, as the bearers of labels that are imposed on them by the state. And I think this is this happens obviously to people in people who seek asylum and refugees, but it also happens in, in criminal justice where the label is offender or prisoner or ex-offender even. And they're the kind of the notion is that um, it's the law abiding majority so-called which um which the that outsider person or group the person who's been estranged by criminal justice has to fit back into uh the 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 supposedly normal law-abiding 
community and that that just doesn't it just doesn't work and it doesn't make sense and it 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 grossly simplifies and flattens and distorts people and their stories um and creates barriers to connection and community so what what i found in in my work particularly with fox Liminus, is that we are depending on 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 what's happening in our community different people are the host and different people are the guest so when somebody who's been through prison invites me into a discussion of their experience they're the host um and when they ask me a question about what it's like to be an academic i am the host um and when uh, when they invite me to assist them with i don't know what one i'll give you a, here's a the perfect example that, that that sort of sums up how how this works at a community level so one of the first people who became involved um with uh, Vox Luminous after prisons, a friend of mine called John. And when John was, we'd, we'd met him first when he was finishing his sentence in the open prison in Scotland. And when he came out, he struggled really desperately to find work. He'd been in prison for quite a long time. And the barriers to seeking employment when you have to disclose a criminal conviction are very significant. So I helped him as best I could by writing references and by trying to give advice and support. Um, and eventually he did get a job and uh, it, it was a long, it took a long time and it was a big struggle, but he got there and he's still in the same job many years later. Um, I think he's probably been in that job for seven, six or seven years now. Anyway, a couple of years ago, my daughter, who's now 19, I think she was 16 or 17 at the time, and she was desperate to find her way into some kind of part-time employment just to supplement the meagre pocket money that I gave her. Um, and I put out a message on Facebook to all my friends saying, does anybody know how how a 16-year-old can get into their first position? Because when you have no experience, it seems really difficult to just get across the door. She'd done all the usual things, taken her CV around shops and um, and and applied online with no success. And the fascinating thing that happened was all my middle class friends, all my so-called law abiding friends responded constructively and positively with advice. And then John said, oh, I can probably get her an interview where I'm working. And so my daughter got her first job through John. Um, she went for that interview, which he helped to sort of mediate and facilitate. And uh, and she worked uh, alongside them for a year or so, developing her experience and her skills. And uh, that's exactly what I mean by mutuality and reciprocity. At one moment, maybe I acted like the host for John, meaning I, I was the person with resources um, that I could place at his disposal. But a little bit later, I was the person in need or my daughter was, and he was the one who was able to help. So um, there was a relationship of reciprocity and solidarity, which created opportunity um, and and brought benefit and further connection to all of us. So yeah, nobody is nobody is only a host or only a guest. Um, those those roles move and change um, continuously in communities. I think.
Um, at least that's been my experience. Well, uh, that, that's such a great story. And as you say, it really kind of, yeah, <laughs> it really uh, describes that so well. Uh, I'm going to, so I'm going to ask you, Fergus, to introduce the song after this last uh, part, but I'm just going to ask you for some final thoughts and then I'll ask you to just introduce the song. Okay. Um, well, uh, I've already kind of explained the song, so uh, and and also, some songwriters would say you shouldn't say too much because you need to let the uh, listener make of it what they will. But um, to those that listen, um, I just hope you enjoy it and uh, go on the journey with the song as it uh, explains one family's experiences and uh, maybe suggests how they uh, flow from from one life and one generation to the next and maybe that stimulates people to think about their own uh, situations and experiences too um i suppose the other the other message of the song which is a final way of of summing up our conversation is that it shows that we're all connected um in in the song the connections that that are in focus are intergenerational connections within a family um but in in our conversation it's obvious that the connections are much more uh, diffuse and complex and rewarding and enriching than that so um maybe by listening to the song a few people out there feel a tiny bit more connected to me and uh and if that happens that'd be a lovely thing so um here it comes. I hope you enjoy it. This song is called Shoemaker's Son. My father was a shoemaker on the old farm at Beechar. He worked beside a standing stone raised centuries before. He married in the new church The year was 1789 I have stood right where they stood Above the waterline My father was a labourer On the fields of West Kintyre Work was hard to come by Though he struggled and he tried He married twice for love or need He rests in a pauper's grave But many children bear his name Both sides of the Atlantic waves Yards at Campbelltown. He moved east to Glasgow. That's where we've settled down. A working man of working men, the rock on which we built. 
He knew the worth of learning His hopes were unfulfilled My father was a blind man Music was his gift He struggled for utopia In 1926 They found love through Esperanto They both believed in peace They raised the sun to share their dreams He passed them on to me daughter and a son I know life will bring to them the same trials that have begun We may never see the victory never reach the promised land but we'll walk that way in unity we travel in hand we travel Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts. A podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much.